What the If is brought to you by listeners like you, thanks to our Patreon members, patreon.com slash whattheif. Go there now and find out how you can become a member and get all kinds of cool rewards. And thank you for supporting our mission for science education and science fun. Welcome to What the If. Alien edition, alien edition. Illegal alien edition, I think. More about that coming up in a second, our if for this week. Meanwhile, um, we are Gabby-less this week. Uh, uh, that's correct. She has been consumed by microbes. Yeah. <laughs> Gabby is on assignment. On assignment in the laboratory. We'll hear more about that next week, I assume. Uh, assuming the laboratory experiment doesn't go awry. Labor- ex- laboratory experiment and awry. It's kind of the only time, one of the few times you hear the word awry. It just naturally goes with laboratory experiment. Uh, well, that's true. That is only used in certain contexts, isn't it? Um, yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. I have to think yeah. about that. Yeah. Catcher in awry. Say it doesn't doesn't work. Doesn't work. Uh, that was a terrible pun as well. With us, however, doing double duty is uh, Professor Matthew Stanley of New York University uh, in, in New York City. How are you, sir? How is New York? I am in, I'm coming to you from Spokane, Washington. Uh, that's right. Um, so we we have a serious marmot shortage here. Um, no. So I don't know if you can help us out with that. Oh boy, do we have, we got marmots. I'm staying at a wonderful place in Spokane that's this uh, kind of little hotel, motel that uh, rambles along the uh, Spokane River here just above the uh, falls, which Spokane has these magnificent falls right in the center of town. Mm-hmm. And um, But there are these adorable creatures I saw yesterday walking on my walk. Um, big fat things and I said there's a beaver and then I came across a sign that said don't feed the marmots and uh, now and you explain the difference between a beaver and a marmot oh I don't know I, I'm certainly no uh, marmot expert but at a glance right. um, I would say marmots do not have the the large flat tails with which we associate beavers right um, I kind of feel like they're a little more social than uh, uh, beavers too I see them huh? in groups hanging out conspiring um, that's true yeah. yeah and these were these were in, i saw two pairs of them yes. sitting yeah. and scurrying in and out of holes and occasionally sitting to just watch the water go by on the river mm-hmm. i assume scheming scheming is what they were probably doing um so uh this week um we have a, a fascinating if that that comes out of your class so tell us is, is this is this a summer tradition that you do now, this class? Um, I don't know how many times you have to do something before it counts as a tradition, um, <laughs> but it is a summer class that I have done before, um, yeah. uh, focusing on everyone's favorite turtlenecked astronomer, uh, Carl Sagan. Um, it's turtlenecks all the way down. It's turtlenecks all the way down. Um, that is correct. Uh, yeah, so it's um, uh, it's an interesting class to, to teach. Um Partially because the students are, who of course are very young, um, are vaguely aware of him, um, but no specifics. Um, so that, that creates an interesting kind of environment to, to tackle a subject on. Yeah. And so I suppose there, are, there may be some youth in our audience. There may be some older folk who somehow inexplicably managed to make it through life without knowing much about Carl Sagan. Um, maybe they know who he was. But uh, yeah, why don't you give us just a little quick thing, and then we'll talk about the if that comes out of uh, Carl Sagan's life. Oh, sure. So uh, uh, Carl Sagan was uh, probably best known um, as sort of one of the first scientists with a big television presence. Um, so he had a, a famous television series called Cosmos um, uh, back right around 1980. Uh, in which his goal was sort of to awake people to the the wonder and grandeur of the universe as understood through science and um, was really a, an epical moment in science representation um, 
uh, on television and uh, as kind of science outreach. Uh, he was also on Johnny Carson a lot, so he was in people's living rooms a great deal. Um, and Johnny Carson, this... Johnny Carson, also someone people may not know. He he was. Oh, I guess the, that's uh, true. Yeah, he was. He ran the Tonight Show for what thirty years or something. So, yeah, have to think about that. Okay. Um, uh, and Sagan was a planetary astronomer uh, who figured out essentially the the nature of Mars and Venus, what their surfaces were like, whether life could be there, how best uh. to explore them. He helped run the uh, robotic spacecraft missions, uh, Pioneer and Voyager, that explored the, the outer solar system for us. Um, uh, and I guess in some important sense, he was an evangelist for the idea that the universe is full of life and it's worth spending time looking for that. Uh, uh, and again, as sort of a, a master of, of outreach in media, um, one of the last things he did was uh, help create the movie Contact uh, starring Jodie Foster, which many, many people have, have seen as a classic in, in SETI thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if, you know, no Carl Sagan, no Neil deGrasse Tyson, no Bill Nye, um, uh, he pioneered the way um, scientists reach out to the public. Yeah, yeah. Um, we would have had Mr. Wizard. Uh, I don't know. Right, he... I don't know Mr. Wizard, but I think he was a, more of my father's and mother's generation. He uh, yeah, he goes whiz. way. That's right. He goes way back. Um, yeah. yeah. So the genre of um, uh, do experiments in a poorly lit room while a camera is pointed at you uh, right. goes back to, to World War II. Um, but Sagan was something quite different. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was uh, a romantic poet of the cosmos. Um, yeah. uh, who would? So a lot of cosmos is actually just him talking. It's actually quite extraordinary. Um, yeah, it's a picture of him sitting on a beach talking. There's <laughs> a picture yeah. of him sitting at a dining room table eating an apple pie, talking. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and through that carries us through the extraordinary wonder um, of the universe around us. It's really something to see. Yeah. Well, that, that's a wonderful way to set up our, uh, our if for this week. And um, that was, uh, uh, I was asking you uh, if uh, out of your, uh, your class of, of all the different things Carl Sagan did, what would be an if? that you would want to pursue. And you mentioned um, his idea. Well, it just set, set it up for us, and then we, will, uh, then we will raise the trumpets and declare the if. Sure. So, so Sagan was a great ifer, I should say. Um, <laughs> uh, if for no other reason than a lot of the things he was interested in, things like the existence of extraterrestrials uh, and whether you could communicate with alien civilizations. Um, are highly speculative, right? Uh, no, it's 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 weird being someone who studies alien civilizations because you don't know if the subject of your study actually exists, right? And that's a strange thing to do. Yeah. So, uh, a lot of his uh, work along those lines um, involved thought experiments, right? He had to to imagine intensely uh, what was going on. Um, and one of the big problems he was interested in was if there are aliens out there, um, how could we find them? Um, and one way to approach that is to uh, try and imagine what the aliens are like on their own terms and then say, how would we look for those things? But um, Sagan inverted that and he said, well, let's start with, we, we only know of one civilization, that's us. Um, so let's use that as our orienting point and imagine if aliens were looking for us, what would they see? Um, and that should be, you know, a way to conceptualize the problem because we know we exist. So that's at least the place we can start thinking about the problem. Um, so we had these really robust, uh, kinds of thought experiments that he would use to, to address these questions. So, so our if, our if is... What the if, uh, what the if aliens, what would we look like to the aliens? What mm -hmm. the if, yeah. what the if aliens saw us? Well, okay, here we go. As I try to formulate it on the fly. What the if aliens saw us? Actually, better, better yet. You know, let me try. <laughs> What the <laughs> You could restart your whole life. You just, you know, you could do redo as we just did. What the yeah, That would be nice. 
we could see through alien eyes. Mm. What the if? What? Whoa, my good idea. <laughs> that, that last one was an accident. What the if we could see ourselves through alien eyes? What would that be like? Do they even have eyes? Mm-hmm. That, that would be one of the big questions. In fact, yeah. Uh, what if they, you know, are, do they even wonder if we're out there? So the aliens have to be, first of all, they have, that has to be the first assumption, maybe, of your if, that they want to look. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's, uh, I think, a really important assumption that Sagan and his friends, people like, say, Frank Drake and John Lilly, um, are are working with. Um, and to them, it seems obvious that any civilization that could survive long enough to create a technological infrastructure would also be curious about the universe around them um, yeah. in the same way that they were. And I guess one of the things we should probably dig into a little bit is whether that is a good assumption. Um, but that's the... Uh, that, that is the assumption that the, that that Sagan starts with um, is that the aliens will be looking for us the same way we're looking for them, um, as uh, the same kind of curiosity. Right? They they must be motivated to to understand the world around them, um, and there's lots of different uh, kinds of looking that you can do uh, if you're looking for a civilization. Like right. This. And so, and you mentioned I, w- I do like to always make sure that we you know talk about things, especially big ideas. Um, beyond a single person. So so he's in a context, and you mentioned a couple other people. Uh, mm-hmm. Frank Drake, I'm familiar with that name. I wasn't sure the other name. I'm not sure. So to, oh, to tell yeah. us, who are these two other uh, people that are working with uh, you? Um, so say, um, nowadays, you can be an astrobiologist. Like, that can be your job. Yeah. Um, that was not true in the 60s, back when Sagan was a young professor. So uh, if you wanted to hang out with other people interested in thinking about aliens, um, that was going to be an eclectic group. So as I mentioned, um, uh, Sagan's a planetary astronomer. He studies planets here in the solar system, like Mars right. and Venus. Um, and then uh, Frank Drake is a radio astronomer who um, uses those giant satellite dishes that you see uh, looking up at the sky. Um, And those are typically used for studying, say, the sun and quasars and pulsars and all all sorts of astronomical bodies give off lots of radio signals. Um, But of course, uh, we as a civilization give off lots of radio signals too. So if... um, as you know, Sagan wonders about what aliens would see when they were looking for us. Uh, it's logical for him to say, "Well, we we give off these huge, really clearly artificial emissions in radio waves. So I'll go talk to some radio astronomers about what they might see if they had accidentally run across uh, alien civilization." So he gets to be so friends if, with, with Frank if they Drake. saw right. So 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 mm-hmm. in other words, he goes to Frank Drake, a radio astronomer, and he says things like, "You know, we have." radio and television, which are beaming uh, things, communications into space, mm-hmm. accidentally, let's say, yep. um, right? Because it just keep the tr- you, If you're watching, uh, or if you're listening to the radio and you're picking up over-the-air broadcasts, um, those, those radio waves don't stop necessarily at the Earth, although a lot of them do bounce back. Um, but certain kinds of signals... Um, go through the atmosphere and just keep going out into space. And so, so Carl Sagan is asking uh, mm-hmm. Frank Drake, hey, if, there, <laughs> if there's another planet in another solar system, probably, and they're watching television, let's say, because I think television, are television uh, signals more powerful than uh, radio? I'm not sure. Anyway, if they're listening to the radio or they're yeah. watching television, they got broadcast entertainment going on. Yes, that's right. And so we our, looked at them, what mm, would we yeah. see? Yeah. What does um, Frank say? Uh, and Frank says, well, we can calculate this. You know, the radio signals get weaker as they travel out into space. Um, so you need, so if you say, well, this is how big our radio telescopes are and how weak a signal that they can detect. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and if the aliens had the same kind of equipment we do uh, and they were you know, at interstellar distances, would they be able to detect us? Um, and the answer turns out to be yes. 
uh, there's, um, and, and strangely, early television signals will actually be more um, visible to them than later ones, because early on in broadcasting, we just pumped up the power as much as we could, because that seemed like an awesome thing to do. Um, and then nowadays, we are like, well, maybe we can do this with less energy and power, because it's cheaper and more efficient and such. Um, so nowadays, actually, we don't broadcast a whole lot of stuff out into the uh, out into the universe um, right. because we use uh, tightly targeted satellite signals or fiber optics. So there's less, less looking. <laughs> right, right. Less we'd, stuff out there. These days, um, I think we'd have to understand that what we'd be looking for was civilizations in some early wasteful phase. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but I should say we do have one huge source of, of radio waves, although it's not entertainment anymore. Um, as Sagan points out, is that's our air defense radars, right? We have these gigantic oh. radar systems running 24 hours a day, uh, watching for enemy missiles launches, essentially. Uh, and those broadcast constantly. So uh, he actually has an essay where he kind of worries about this, that the aliens will recognize this as a as a uh, emblem of militarism, um, <laughs> and worry about who we are. Uh, uh -huh. Well, I'd say rightly so, and rightly so, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, so that's Drake, right? So kind of the, the technical side of ways you might look, the ways right. aliens might look for us. And Frank Drake uh, is at the uh, Green Bank Observatory in West right. Virginia, I believe. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And the other person. Uh, uh, and the other person I mentioned um, is John Lilly, who actually, actually not sure if he's still alive, um, is actually a um, dolphin researcher, okay. <laughs> of, of wow. all things. Uh, so one of the things that, that Sagan liked to talk about a lot um, is what he called various kinds of chauvinism. Um, and this are plays of plays on male chauvinism, but it says, well, what if we're we're carbon chauvinists, right? We think that all life out there needs to be carbon-based like us. Um, and then, you know, maybe we're oxygen chauvinists and liquid water chauvinists, right? <laughs> we have this problem of imagining everything is like us. Yeah. Um, so uh, in order to kind of address this problem, he says, well, maybe there are different kinds of intelligences here on Earth that we could study to get a better sense of how intelligence could be different out in the universe. Um, and one of the, uh, this is the, the 60s was sort of a 60s, 70s, great era of experimentation on animals, uh, particularly animal cognition. So people are, this is when people are like trying to teach chimps how to talk and uh, dogs to solve puzzles. Um, and uh, Lily was a, a pioneer and someone who tried to make the case that um, dolphins and cetaceans more generally were as intelligent as us, that they were totally sentient and totally conscious. Um, they just didn't happen to have tool use. Uh -huh. um, so Lily is brought on as someone who might be able to speak about um, the varieties of what counted as intelligence. Um, so they would have these, um, these marathon uh, talk sessions at Green Bank, uh, where they would like hang out for hours and smoke a little pot, um, and think about <laughs> aliens looking out in the universe and what they would see, um, of us. With the dolphins, what was he, um, this is not, not, <clears throat> not something I know very much about. If, if they're intelligent, what is it that he would, um, was there anything that came out of that, those ideas that affected what a communication from an alien species would look like, that it, how it would be different? Oh, um, sadly, I think in practical terms, no. Um, right. We're still chauvinists in all the way that, ways that Sagan warned us not to be. Right. Um, uh, or, are, said, are we chauvinists or we just can't, we just... We just can't imagine. Well, I think we might be helpless chauvinists <laughs> in the sense that we, <laughs> yeah. we can't imagine it. Um, so, I mean, the idea was a good one of, you know, look at non-human intelligences here on Earth in order to expand our, our views. But I don't know if it got very far. Um, but there's people, I should say, nowadays pushing back on, on some of these questions, too. So, for instance, um, there's an astronomer named uh, Sherry Wells Jensen who happens to be visually impaired. 
So she's written some wonderful essays about this assumption we have that vision is the default way for intelligent beings to interact with the world around them. Mm -hmm. um, and what mm -hmm. might the universe, or how might we think about contacting, interacting with aliens that don't have sight as a, a primary thing? Um, and they're really thought, uh, very thought provoking essays um, and, uh, and a great testament to the value of having a diverse group of people working together yeah. on challenging yeah. problems, right? She, she brings a perspective that would not have occurred to most people. Right. And I feel like what, what happens is what they end up doing is, um, and this ends up becoming more formalized with the group SETI, a search for extraterrestrial intelligence, mm -hmm. and SETI, still around, very much so, and uh, I'm a big supporter. And uh, I shouldn't say I'm a big supporter. I, got a, I give them a lot of heart <laughs> and, a, and a little bit of money. Um, but um, uh, they come around, I know Frank Drake talks about this a lot, and I guess Carl Sagan as well, I'm sure. They try to come up with some common denominator, some common way that intelligent species, even assuming vast diversity, what are some common things that they would come together on? And one of them is, is for instance, that using mathematics, right? In, in other words, if we found a mm -hmm. signal that appeared to have some uh, non-natural, non-random, intelligent uh, numbers embedded in it or something like that, the prime numbers or something like that, right? That they, yeah. that whether you were dolphins, whether you were a totally blind species or not, you know, whether you were whatever, you might, they felt like you discovered something that. math. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was the idea, right, is that there, there must be these kind of universal things out there that would be recognized. Um, yeah. And because these guys are scientists, um, they, they decide that science is the, <laughs> is the core way to do that, right? <laughs> oh, and it's not, it's, it's not obvious, actually, that that should be the case. Um, but as we, as we started off with, they imagine that the aliens are just like them. Um, right, there's whatever the alien equivalent of turtlenecks is, they've got them, right? They're wearing them. Um, <laughs> yes, turtlenecks, the turtleneck principle, yeah, um, <laughs> or the Fermi, the, the Fermi, uh, the Fermi paradox. Why are, why, why are there so few turtlenecks now, right? <laughs> so, the, the hope is there, the, or the way they imagine it is, um, if aliens are listening, we should send a message that is unambiguous uh, in its reliance on mathematics. And right. then once the, and that'll get their attention. And then we can send um, uh, a, a guide to the way we think about things, right? Starting from mathematics, we'll build up all the uh. basics of science and the basics of our language and so on. Uh, and then we can express um, complicated things right. uh, because, you know, they might be able to make sense of our accidental broadcasts or they might not. Um, uh -huh. The problem is that it's actually really hard to go from pure mathematics to any meaningful statement about who we are as a species. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, famous philosopher and mathematician about 100 years ago, almost goes insane trying to fix <laughs> trying essentially trying to prove that one plus one equals two um to to make it <laughs> to, to start from basic principles of mathematics and build up to higher systems of logic and so on wow. uh, all that to say it's not it's not an obvious kind of project to do yeah yeah um, and they try it out with each other too so when oh. um uh, drake and sagan are trying to figure out what kind of message they should send such that aliens could understand what's happening right. um uh, uh drake um writes one up um that could conceivably be broadcast uh and gives it to sagan over lunch um and says you know can you figure out what this is uh, <laughs> and uh and the answer was no <laughs> he, 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 he didn't give him a, there was no decoder ring there was not and then but then once he did give him a suggestion then it's like oh yeah okay now i get what's going on here <laughs> um but the message is you know, it's by, by modern standards, it's fantastically crude, but they try yeah. to do things like indicate how many planets are in our solar system and which planet uh, we come from and the fact that yeah. DNA has a spiral structure and mm. that mm. we go through a life cycle where we're born small and then get big. Um, 
and, uh, and that, you know, we're mostly made of carbon and things like that. Yeah. Um, and these are really hard things to, <laughs> to convey if you don't know what you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you know, to, to their credit, um, it's easy to just bail on this project. It's easy to say, oh, you totally. know what, yeah. the variety of, you know, it's like they even could say, oh, you know, <laughs> one tried to send a message to the other and failed. And, you know, I think ultimately they're like, well, let's just go with, let's go with the best idea that we can come up with. Yeah. Let's and, send they, something. and they learned some important things <laughs> in the process yeah. of that failure. Right. That's, yeah. that's okay. Um, and later, later attempts were certainly more sophisticated, um, uh, and better whether they would actually function is, is something else in, entirely. Right. Um, now, now your if just to get back to your original, if your if was, what would we look like through alien eyes? And this, this is, okay. this mm -hmm. is starting to get at that, but sort of what I, here's what I love the if of what if we could communicate with aliens, um, or could we communicate with aliens, um, leads them naturally to the project of thinking about the receiver. You know, oh, you're going to send a message. Yeah, you need okay. to know your audience, as, you would, mm -hmm. as we would say in the entertainment biz. Um, and Carl Sagan was a little bit in the entertainment business, so maybe he, he brought some of that there. Um, uh, actually, yeah, it's interesting. He ends up in communication. Communication is actually one of his great skills. We could that, say, as it turns out, as, as one of my students said just this week, says, I think Sagan missed his calling. He should have been just a writer. He should have been a poet, oh, uh, yeah. an essayist. And the fact that he ended up in astronomy is actually kind of a great loss. <laughs> they they oh. would have rather had him just writing instead of doing science the whole time. Amazing. Um, uh, uh, and but yet, yeah. in spite of that, he, he does have a lot of books and a lot of... Uh, yeah, an enormous increased. bibliography. Yeah. 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 Um, so if the, but the, the, pro, the general problem is, as you say, so the communication problem is, is one thing, but that's, I think, not actually central to our if here. Uh, uh -huh. It's rather the aliens are looking at their skies. Um, and would they notice that we are here? And huh. that's, and that's not quite the same question, right? Um, so, uh, one of, I should say, Sagan's best essays, from my point of view, um, this is one on the pale blue dot. Uh, it's very short and easy to read. You go find it. Yeah. Um, and this has to do with a um, photograph taken from the, uh, one of the Voyager space probes. They're launched in the 70s, and by the early 90s, they're leaving the solar system. They've finished their mission. Um, and Sagan uh, makes a big argument to turn the cameras on Voyager back towards Earth and take a picture of what we would look like from the edge of the solar system. Right. What year is this? Do we, sorry, uh, I want to say 94, but that might be oh. the year the essay was published. I'd have, uh -huh. to, I'd have to double check. Right, right. Um, and the NASA bureaucrats um, push back and they say, no, <laughs> that's not that's not science. That's we, we won't learn anything scientific from this. Oh, here it is. And so I found, I, by the way, I just looked up the okay. date. So it was it was uh, it was a photograph taken by Voyager one on uh, Valentine's Day, 14th of oh. February, 1990. Okay. Nice. Um, uh, and this is, this is so the fact that it's 1990 is actually quite important, right? So that's the, uh, the end of the cold war. Um, uh, NASA's justification for essentially its entire life was kind of in the space race against the Soviets. And suddenly NASA, um, is really struggling to know what it is for and how it is going to justify its existence from here on out. And these conversations are public and explicit. Um, and so when Sagan says, let's do this cool thing, um, NASA says, no, because it'll make us look foolish, right? This is not a hard scientific project. This is some weird romantic thing that you want to do, Carl. We're not, we're not going to do it. It's going to make us look foolish. Now, this is b before the selfie revolution. That's correct. Nowadays, <laughs> yes. you know, they later did a um, the Cassini mission. Um, near the end of the Cassini mission, they did a repeat of the a modern repeat of the pale blue dot, and they asked everyone on Earth to sign. At the, they announced the time that the that the new pale blue dot, dot image was going to be taken, and they asked everyone on Earth at that time or as close to that time as possible to take a selfie of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so. Nowadays, it would be commonplace, but this, or, or actually, maybe NASA was intuitively getting the idea that this is just a selfie, and come on, and therefore, that's right. <laughs> so we can't do that. We can't do that. Um, yeah. 
he does obviously um, succeed in persuading them uh, eventually. I got to say, um, it seems shocking. It, it it seems, I still don't get it. It's so against my ideas. Like why, if you live on earth, the notion of taking a picture of the earth from the greatest distance we had a craft at that moment seems obvious and huge. You know, there's a million things you could, if you needed to be practical about it. There's all kinds of interesting things, right? Well, How is it part not... of what's going on is that, and, and one of the things, it's it's the, and the tension here is really interesting, right? So yeah. um, what makes it interesting to Sagan is that uh, the Earth will be fantastically tiny in this yeah. picture. Um, and because of that, the NASA folks say, we're not going to learn anything about the Earth that we don't already know because we're going to get so little data from the Earth itself. Right. And he says, yeah, that's exactly the point. Um, uh, and, you know, famously, it's on the picture, the Earth is one pixel. Right? It's this right. little blue, pale blue dot. <laughs> right. All you have uh, is essentially the, the color of the Earth. So he, it, yeah. what, what I don't understand is what's being lost. Like why? Oh, not? so yeah, that's right. So for what's instance, the constraint? Yeah. We have satellites up that look at the earth right now, um, that do things like monitor carbon dioxide levels and cloud patterns. Oh, sorry. And, what, what I mean is what's being, in other words, it, there's this sort of poverty consciousness concept. In other words, okay, the Voyager, we don't want the Voyager to take a picture of the earth because it could be doing something else oh, right. instead. What, what That's right. That so mean? it's actually not um, that Voyager should be doing something else instead. Uh, it's that uh, NASA resources here on Earth need to be dedicated to it. That is, technicians need to spend days um, uh, programming the computer, programming Voyager to do a particular thing, and then we need to have a telescope dedicated to receiving the data and so on. Um, right. So those are all things that could be used for, for other um, got it. Got it. Uh, for other purposes, and in particular, I should say again, it's the Cold War era or post Cold War era of budget cuts. So all these folks are being fired from NASA because they're not needed oh, anymore. Um, and in fact, as, as as Sagan says, if he had waited one more day, it wouldn't have been possible because the technicians who actually do the work um, are fired. No way. Day. So so wow. it was this close. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's that is utterly amazing, and yet this is, boy, this really comes into an interesting place about the the notion of, um, for lack of a better term, poetry, the the power and you know benefits mm -hmm. of poetry, um, or you know communication, whatever it is, all that stuff versus some um, also beneficial but technical scientific mm -hmm. work um, when. Uh, was it with the Apollo 8 astronauts? One of the early Apollo missions, right? One of the first things they said was when they looked back at the Earth, they said, they sent, NASA sent the wrong people. They shouldn't have sent us fighter pilots here. They yeah. should have sent poets. Yeah, you know. that's right. Um, yeah, so those, the Apollo 8 was the folks who took the Earthrise photo, right? The first picture uh -huh. of Earth from a distance, any yeah. distance. Uh, uh, and Sagan wants to compare the pale blue dot to that. Um, oh. And one of the things he, in that comparison that I, I find really powerful is that in the Earthrise photo, and if you've never seen it before, actually you probably have seen it if you don't know it, but Google yeah. Earthrise and so you can see the picture, um, is that in the Earthrise photo, you can discern continents and oceans mm -hmm. and weather patterns, right? It looks like the Earth as you think of it. And you could, and you can pick out things, right? Okay, well, there's the tip of South America, so that must be Peru and so on. Um, and with the pale blue dot from the edge of the solar system, you can't do that. Right? You can't tell if there's continents, you can't tell if there's oceans, um, you can tell there's water, but you can't tell if there's, uh, you know, wh what that looks like. Um, you can't see the things that divide up humanity into things that seem important to us. We live in North America. We live in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, we're on the daylight side of the planet, right? <laughs> all these, all those things are completely invisible from the distance yeah. um, of the edge of the solar system. Uh, so, so Sagan's lesson from that is to to remind us of how petty those things are. Right? Mm -hmm. How how can you be worried about things like nationalism? Um, 
when we're all literally all just mashed together into one pixel. Yeah. Uh, now, how absurd are your imperialist ambitions to try to rule three percent more of a single pixel? Yeah. So maybe maybe also NASA was the critics at NASA were kind of seeing some of this coming too and saying we don't want to be involved in your hippie politics or That's we're just right. afraid and of that. Yeah, and yeah. Sagan's hippie politics were well established by this point too. Oh. Um to and this is also right around when he gets rejected from the National Academy of Sciences. Um probably oh. for exactly these sorts of issues that people say he's not he's not a serious scientist, he's interested in politics and TV and and we shouldn't treat him as a, a serious scientist anymore. Wow. So the pale, the the pale blue dot you think um which is revered now. I mean, I must say, you know, so I, I, it's incredible to me. I'm curious what you, about the students in your class, but it's incredible to me how many young people know the pale blue dot. When I talk to people, it's like they will bring yeah. it up. Oh, Carl, mm -hmm. you, you mean like, do you, and they think and what's funny is there's a video. Somebody made this insanely popular viral, as we would say, video on YouTube. And there's been many uh, it, other people have made their own versions of it now, but where they took his uh, recitation of the essay um, and put it to music and even made him sing using auto-tune and things like this. And, you know, made beautiful. It's a beautiful thing and people cry. They think that's actually what he made. Yeah, you know, that's right. Um, I, uh, yeah, I thought that happened the first day of class, actually, as we're talking. I said, you know, how do you... Have you heard of Sagan? And if so, how do you know? Uh -huh. um, and one of the students said, well, from his pale blue dot video. Um, That's right. Or they might even have said TikTok. Actually, I can't remember. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Fantastic. From the grave to a TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he would appreciate that. I know he would appreciate uh, that. That's right. I mean, he was a, a master of, of all forms of media. So yeah. I think he'd be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. But you're saying that actually... So what I'm saying is we revere it now. I think we look on him with great uh, respect. Um, mm -hmm. but at the time was kind of not helping him among the ivory tower. That's correct. And types. I should say many of the things that we revere him for, um, things like pale blue dot cosmos, the whole idea of SETI, um, uh -huh. were all extremely controversial things at the time, um, uh, that, you know, were potential or real career ruiners, uh, for a young scientist. Wow. Um, wow. And that's, I don't know, one of the important lessons of history is how looking back on things, we think about it very differently than it was thought about at the time. Yeah. Um, and it can be very interesting. One of the, one of the great um, rewards of historical research is to see how things that nowadays we take for granted as being important or valuable um, were widely dismissed and attacked um, when they were first proposed. Right, right. So it, I, I've always, and there's, uh, there's great science fiction books that deal with SETI and uh, I think the three-body problem involves this, but I love the idea that uh, if we do hear a signal, suppose suppose SETI manages to tune in on a signal from an alien uh, civilization, an alien broadcast, it might come from someone else who's also risking their job to do that. Ah, uh, yes, that's right. Oh, no, no, as you say, in the case of the three-body problem, um, uh, literally risking, yeah, their lives. Yeah. Um, and that's, this again circles us back to our initial assumption, which is that Sagan wants, Sagan imagines that the alien civilizations will have gotten past all of the problems that we have, by which he means uh. everyone will have finally come to accept that Saganism is the right way to, <laughs> to look at the universe. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and that that's just, uh, and that the problems he's having are just a blip. Um, if, if a civilization is going to survive, they'll have to figure out how to, how to get past that kind of resistance. Right. Um, uh, and I don't know. It's, it does not seem to me that his prediction is, is holding out especially well. I don't think we're much more towards the road of Saganism today than we were uh, in his time. How, and how would you define Saganism? Oh, so um, it's this... Uh, a uh, hippie viewpoint that the the true nature of civilization is curiosity and awe and wonder and mathematics and scientific rigor, um, and that departures from that are are blips and errors. That it's the the, the nature of humanity is not 
violence and nationalism and mm. jealousy. The, mm. the nature of humanity is elegance and mathematics and geometry um, and, and, and also an emotional reverence for the, the orderliness of the universe. Um, and that you can build a whole civilization around those values too. Interesting. Interesting. So our, our if, and we'll come back to our if, and our if is, um, what if aliens could see us, what would they do? So the first thing is, would they, I, I love the, this notion of, would they see us? How mm -hmm. would they, if, if only, you know, if we're imagining aliens being, uh, it's fairly well established. We don't have any living, highly evolved tool using civilization, alien civilization in our solar system. We, we, we would have seen them by now. Uh, yeah, that's right. Like they haven't grown up on Europa or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, so these so, are visitors from another star. So another star. And so if the Earth looks as tiny as it does, it's, it's one, you know one tiny pale blue dot from Saturn, the distances to the next star, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that's the closest star, let alone the you know stars on the other side of the galaxy, let alone stars in other galaxies. Mm -hmm. I mean, the dis Earth is not visible. Yep, that's right. So, well, I should say there's um, we, there's ways they could do it, right? So we uh -huh, do uh -huh. see um, planets around other stars, but yeah, not yeah. in the sense of we take a picture that you can look at, but rather we use right. these indirect methods like what the Kepler satellite does, um, right. where it looks for planets passing in front of another star, and then the, the light on the star then dips a little bit. And by how it dips, we can infer things like the size of the planet and how fast it's moving. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that in many circumstances, we can get a lot of information about that. So we can tell um, how big the planet is, uh, how far away from the sun it is. And in some cases, uh, whether it has an atmosphere and what that atmosphere is made of. So if the aliens are doing the same thing uh, looking at us, um, they'll see, for instance, that both uh, two of the inner rocky planets in our solar system have thick atmospheres. So that's Venus and, and Earth. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Venus's uh, atmosphere is extremely hot and extremely dense, and that'll be recognizable to them. And they'll also be able to see that it's all made out of sulfuric acid. Uh, uh, so those are pretty cool things to know. Right. Um, and then and if, they, the, if they are a sulfuric acid, very dense breathing mm -hmm. species, they will look at that say, and say, aha, that's great. Life. That's, that's yeah. our Goldilocks zone. Right? <laughs> that's right. Um, and then they'll look at Earth. Uh, and they'll say, um, oh, that's a, that's way too cold, right? Freezing. So some parts yeah. of that planet um, would have frozen uh, water on it. Right. Nothing's going to live there. Death. Pure and death. Even, that's that's right. Right. And even yeah. worse, um, there's all of this free oxygen in the atmosphere, um, which is terrible. Right? Oxygen is a fantastically dangerous element. Right? It causes fires. It causes <laughs> decay and rust. Um, nothing's going to be living on a planet with huge amounts of, of free oxygen. Um, and if they're looking even more closely, uh, they're going to notice, um, and maybe if they, I should say, if they're watching us over long periods of time, decades or centuries, uh, they'll notice that there's a huge amount of, um, or an increasing amount of, uh, weirdly complicated, um, chemicals like chlorofluorocarbons um, in the atmosphere. Mm. And I could imagine that this is going to cause a big debate on the alien planet um, because somebody's going to say, and maybe that alien will be wearing a turtleneck, will say, look, chlorofluorocarbons have no natural way of forming. So huh. if they're present in large numbers, there must be an industrial civilization on that planet. And then the other aliens um, say, that's ridiculous. How could aliens survive in a place where there's tons of free oxygen and water freezes regularly? Um, and turtleneck alien says, well, you're just being a sulfuric acid chauvinist. Right? That's right. There's so many different kinds of life that could be out there. Yeah. Um, and maybe that turtleneck alien loses tenure at Alien Harvard. Um <laughs> And has to go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, but actually, this uh, is this is this is a really insightful um, thing here. You know, the notion that uh, um, 
they would see uh, Earth. This I find it really helpful to imagine an alien species looking at Venus and saying, ah, fantastic, and then <laughs> looking at Earth and saying, obviously, no life. Um, yeah. It really helps kind of get your head around the perspective shift here. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, it strikes me that they might see all the um, greenhouse gases being pumped into the atmosphere and say, oh, we think there are, there is a civilization there and they're doing the right thing. They're trying to turn that planet into Venus, you know, because... Oh, that's right. yeah, it's a terraforming <laughs> process. That's uh, right. Along the Venusian way. forming. Uh, yeah, trying to make it more more um, pleasant for us mm-hmm. to visit. You know? Yeah, Venus forming. Venus forming, um, yeah. It's quite possible. And this is one of the, uh, as, as you say, it's really helpful to do this thought experiment because it makes you think through things uh, in a way you wouldn't have uh, otherwise. Yeah. Um, and Sagan's conclusion, essentially, from the pale blue dot is that it's really hard to notice um, even a world-spanning, world-wrecking civilization like ours um, from a relatively close distance, right? The edge of the solar system is right next door mm-hmm. in galactic terms. Um, and even then, it's really hard to, to see us, uh, unless you know what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's, and one way to read that is as a kind of pessimism. You're like, oh, we're never going to find any aliens because the aliens can't even find us. Yeah. But Sagan spins it in this way that he's so good at uh, to say, no, this me- this is this shows us what the challenge is and why the fact that we haven't found any aliens yet should not dissuade us. Right? Mm. We should keep looking because now we understand how difficult it is. Right. Um, and we understand the importance of creative thinking and thinking outside the box in grappling with this problem. Um, so it's not pessimistic. It's right. actually deeply encouraging. Um, and says we need to get out there and, you know, we need to get our best minds on it because it is such a challenge. So it seems to me that this is, it's an amazing thing he does that he's able to spin, um, the, the, this intense challenge and the lack of any information as a reason to go out and do more of that same thing. Yeah. Well, I could see even, again, you see there's scientific value in sort of, um, measuring the parameters, Okay, yep. well, okay. let's look at Earth from this distance. So now we know this is how easy or how hard it would be. Uh, and now here's a project for you scientists, you know, get some grants. And, yeah, that's uh, right. So for instance, work. We, would, we would never, the Kepler satellite would never be able to be doing the work it is doing now in terms of like measuring alien atmospheres without that kind of Saganite inspiration. Huh. Um, right. So the, the the people who built Kepler and who are running it today red pale blue dot when they were little kids um and that's not an accident right right right. or james webb the modern uh modern telescope Mm -hmm. um i i could imagine just as we wrap up uh and this is the arthur c clark inspiration in me you know me uh, inspired by arthur c clark i could imagine um who was a great science fiction writer um you know one of the ways we measure one of the ways we can find out whether other stars have planets around them, sometimes without even seeing the planet itself, is by measuring the wobble. We've got telescopes now that are so sensitive, right? We can, and we have had for a number of decades now, I think, been able to measure the fact that, oh, that star is being tugged uh, periodically in different directions, and that mm-hmm. must, it must have a planet or multiple. We can actually measure multiple, we can figure out all the planets that are circling that star and tugging it tiny bits this way and that. And by looking at the, uh, the, the periodicity or, you know, mm-hmm. the frequency. Yeah, and that was how we, I, that was how we discovered the first extrasolar planet is by looking for those wobbles. Right. Um, right. I could imagine a civilization so powerful, so powerful that they are sending a Morse code message in the wobbles you know that they've they've arranged uh, the yeah. planets in their system to mm-hmm. circle the star to make it move in a particular way that's not random. Yeah, I can't recall if that's in one of the sequels to Three Body Problem. Maybe there's mm-hmm. some book mm-hmm. I read recently in the last few years where civilizations um, send messages with gravity waves uh, by doing ah. that with with pulsars um, because pulsars are, are super regular. 
in their wobble. Um, right. So right. if you, so they're like a carrier wave for, for gravity waves. Um, so awesome. that would be a good thing to look forward to. That's yeah. awesome. And I will send you, uh, if you go to our website, whattheif.com, you can find all our earlier episodes and as well as using your prod- podcast app, you can scroll back through all the earlier episodes. A very early episode, four mm-hmm. plus years ago, we did, I don't know if you remember, I believe the title was Black Hole Bongos. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> we imagined yeah. banging black holes together to send uh, to send messages, as is our want. So, um, well, thank you for this uh, this wonderful deep deep dive into uh, Carl Sagan, into Saganism, and the pale blue dot. The pale blue dot is vivid as ever mm-hmm. in our minds. Um, uh, anything you'd like to plug? coming up exciting uh, no things. that's um gonna be a quiet summer for me in terms of doing stuff so nothing oh, exciting very very nice very nice um and uh, we know we can plug gabby has a uh, story coming up that's going to be published so we'll keep an eye out for that i can say by the way we have some exciting guests coming up uh um getting scheduled uh, throughout july and uh, i believe even into august some really awesome guests coming so stay tuned for those um you can always email us at feedback at whattheif.com. And uh, most importantly, if you don't know about our membership program, how you can become a super ifer through membership, um, go to patreon.com slash whattheif and um, see all the cool rewards we have for members, those who you become a monthly uh, um uh, a monthly subscription and very, very, there's a whole range of, you know, you can do at different levels, including all the way uh, very low levels. Uh, if you just want to start checking out what's it like to be a super ifer, experience life as a super ifer, it's pretty exciting. It's, it's pretty, pretty exciting. amazing. And as you get higher into higher levels, you achieve uh, more and more spectacular merch. You could be mm-hmm. sipping out of a goblet with the what the if logo on it. You could be, you could be clothed in uh, what the if fashion, which is a, uh, known around the galaxy some of the finest wear um so thank you all for uh for tuning in and um uh, matt would you like to uh it's tough because there's only two of us today we're we're one third down yeah on our uh on our power here but uh help set up for us the ro- closing rituals mm-hmm. that we must go through each well, week. we need to take a minute and uh, realize that we've been drifting in our spacecraft from star to star, probably for several hundred years, and we turn our telescopes towards the inner part of a yellowish star that we're approaching, um, <laughs> and we see some dots, and one yeah. of those dots is a little blue, and as we look more closely, we suddenly see a McDonald's. And we say, what the Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, By the way, there's a special uh, Patreon-only post-show discussion coming up. That'll be on our Patreon page. So if you are a Patreon member, make sure to go there and check it out. Matt and I will have a special, uh, more in-depth discussion about Carl Sagan. Check it out. Thank you all for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Oh, I almost hit it perfectly. Close enough. <laughs> Pretty see <close>. ya. <laughs>